Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, and welcome to our Schriever Space Power Forum Series. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. John Plum join us. He's the first Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. In this role, he's responsible for the overall supervision of policy for the Department of Defense for space warfighting. He's got a wide breadth of experience when it comes to integrated strategic deterrence, everything from space warfighting to missiles and cyber defense, as well as submarine operations. Prior to his current role, Dr. Plum worked for the RAND and Aerospace Corporations. He also commanded at various levels during a naval career that extended over two decades. Thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedule, which I can only imagine how busy it is these days to join us here at Mitchell. And to kick things off, I thought I'd give you a little time to introduce yourself and what things, what's happening in the space policy arena at DOD. Uh, well, thank you very much, Kevin, and thanks to the Mitchell Institute for uh, setting this up. And I'll just say happy Valentine's Day to you and all our viewers. <laughs> I know we all love space, so I think maybe that's why we set it up today. There you uh, go. And also uh, coffee, so hang on one second. All right, so I thought I'd just keep these a little bit brief uh, sure. so we can get to the Q&A, which I know is what uh, you know, came from most folks. But let me just kind of give you an overview of sort of what I've been doing for the last year and where I think we're headed. So I walked in uh, in March of 22, right, uh, kind of at the tail end of a massive restructuring of the department mm -hmm. uh, by the Congress, but in recognition of its growing uh, value and need for uh, space and it's really neat, right? So we've got a Space Command now, we've got a Space Force now, we've got a Space Acquisition Executive now, we've mm -hmm. got an ASD for space policy yeah. now. Um, and so all these places fell, all these parts fell into place, and now it's up to us to try to figure out, well, how do we make all of this work and make sure we're all pushing in the same direction? Uh, on top of that layer, of course, Secretary Austin, his first day in, said China's a facing threat, focus on China. And so those two things together have really, really driven the department in a way that I find is really, uh, um, what's the right word? It's encouraging to see us all pushing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a really important time, too, because uh, China clearly are facing threat, and we really need to be focused on that. And I think in space is a perfect example of where that is, uh, is true. Um, so in the Obama administration, I worked in space policy for a bit. Uh, and to be totally honest, it was really still a hobby shop. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there were a lot of little stovepipes, and uh, what I would say is where we are now is kind of a, the entire government understands the value of space, uh, and the department and the IC really focused uh, together on the threat, which kind of pulls people along. So the national defense strategy has uh, four uh, priorities, uh, just to deter strategic attack, deter aggression with a focus on China, uh, defend the homeland, and build a resilient joint force. All four of those absolutely rely on space, in and through. You cannot be resilient without space. You cannot deter strategic attack without space. It's it's remarkable. And I think this growing understanding is, is, is really important. Uh, so once I kind of got situated, I've laid out uh, kind of my three priorities for space and for space policy, uh, which I call the three C's, which is down from five C's of your. Uh, but it's uh, space control space cooperation, and space classification, although really what I say is space overclassification. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are all linked. Uh, space control, making sure we have the ability to operate in space. I mean, space is in the U.S. DNA for the way we fight, really just for the way we execute missions mm -hmm. in competition or in crisis, 
or in conflict, so we have to have access to space. Uh, space cooperation, how do we really work with our allies? All right, we're not the only game in town anymore. We have more and more allies with more and more capabilities. Uh, and so how do we uh, coordinate with them to make sure that we're maximizing our deterrence and maximizing our ability to win in a conflict? Uh, but that is completely tied up with the classification problem. So the overclassification problem we hear about inside the Beltway is often the one about industry partners, which is also a huge problem, like the stuff that's more classified makes it harder for industry folks to work on things, including kind of the apocryphal story of the RF engineer who's working on a super classified program, and then his company has another super classified program, and they need exactly the same skill set, but man, he can't get over there yet because mm -hmm. he doesn't have the right tickets yet. That's silly. Uh, but from an allied standpoint, we have uh, kind of this rampant use of no foreign as a classification designation uh, that really needs to get under control. How can we figure out how to share information at operationally relevant speed, not the way our information sharing was originally designed? And so pushing on that uh, will help us unlock the other two. Um, so that's kind of where we are and what we're working on. As I look forward, uh, I think uh, really key uh, for us to really start to normalize space as an operational domain. And that's not just for the, you know, those individuals that have been doing this the whole career, not unlike mm -hmm. yourself, but uh, for a whole of government understanding and approach so that as we talk about space and look to push on different envelopes or, or develop capabilities that it is not uh, always having to go back to the drawing board to re-explain. Uh, I think we're making great progress there, but that's, that takes everybody pushing on it. And I know well, I talked with uh, General Saltzman, General Dickinson, Secretary General, all of us together understanding it to kind of keep working on this uh, to the benefit of the country. Terrific. Thanks. That's a great overview. Um, you're no stranger to policy. You've been doing no, this sir. for quite a while at the Senate, the National Security Council, the Department of Defense before. So you got to feel pretty comfortable jumping into policy. But I'm struck by uh, the fact that even in your job title, I think the words uh, warfighting domain are used, uh, policy for warfighting domain. It wasn't long ago, those words were not allowed to be spoken by former commanders of Air Force Space Command. So there really has been a a change, a recognition of the threat. It's fertile ground for new policies, that's for sure. You've, you've talked about several already, but do you, have you kind of set up a priority of, we've got to do this first, do this second, this third, or is it, I mean, you're just attacking all on all fronts at this point. So our, you know, when I walked into the job, the first big priority was, was very clear. We had just been involved, uh, been tasked just before I got there with conducting a space strategic review by the National Security Advisor. Uh, and I think our approach has really been, a, I'll just say a winning one, uh, because as opposed to conducting an analysis in those stovepipes I referenced, which would have been a traditional way to do this, mm -hmm. uh, all credit to my team and to several members of the IC just across the, across the interagency, we brought all our stakeholders together and had them all be uh, contributing partners as we try to set the security environment, set the understanding, what is China doing, what is Russia doing, what do we need to be doing? And that, I think, has had a massive, uh, helpful, I'll say payoff, it's not the right word, but because we socialized everyone and brought people together, uh, we now kind of have this common baseline understanding of the security environment that I do not believe has existed previously. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the priority, and I think Capitalizing on that as we go forward is kind of the real, the meat of it. Um, I think that answers your question. If there's yeah. more you'd like to ask, that's, well, that's a, you know, as a first priority. I think that's 
it makes sense, you know, bring everybody together because um, I think past experience would indicate there have been stovepipes in these areas. Right. So I talked about space over classification. Yeah. You know, a lot of folks think of classification, oh, we're going to declassify things so they'd be unclassified. I'm almost never talking about that. Mm -hmm. But bringing folks from across into, you know, getting them right into compartments if they need to be right into compartments or figuring out how to talk about these things across, uh, that is new. But so everyone together with the same shared set of information is a very different situation, too, than individuals with different ownership of different classified pieces. Great. I get shipped a little bit uh, to focus a little on the, the threat environment. Sure. And uh, General Salzman, the new chief of space operations, has said uh, space is critical and adversaries are going to attack space. Um, and there's no doubt that China continues to be aggressive in acquiring, uh, demonstrating, and deploying counter space capabilities. Right. The Russians have done the same, and I expect other adversaries are considering it. With that as a backdrop, could you uh, walk us through how you see the threat environment evolving in space and what implications that has on policy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, absolutely no question that China and Russia have looked at the way the United States fights, realized that we rely on space as a lever arm and then look to exploit that as a potential weakness that they could find a way to. That's, a, mm. that's not new or interesting on some level. That's what any worthy adversary will do, right? Uh, but they've been working hard on it, right? We know they both have direct ascent ASATs, including kind of the irresponsible use of them in testing where they've you know, created a long life debris, uh, continue to find different ways to try to come after our systems, and so we have to be ready to uh, defend against that. Uh, and I think we're making some good strides there. I think this growing awareness of these threats is also helping us. Uh, and so, in some ways, you know, the Russian use of that uh, noodle test in, uh, I think mm -hmm. it was like late November, December 21, once again, they've overplayed their hand, kind of the standard Russian problem in some ways. But uh, that really helped drive the focus home, helped, frankly, uh, get the international community uh, up on the awareness of this kind of mm -hmm. problem and bad behaviors in space. So we've had tremendous success in the United States with kind of promoting the this norm that the vice president announced about not not conducting destructive t tests of direct and ASAP missile. Mm -hmm. We have a direct and ASAP missile. Okay, no one's going to be able to stop that. But the fact is you don't need to test it real long-lived debris. But that has helped raise the overall awareness in the public, right, uh, of these threats to space. And so for us, we need to be able to be prepared to uh, defend against those. So one of the things we're really working on is uh, mission assurance. And by that, I don't mean uh, kind of launch mission assurance. I mean mission assurance of our space systems. Warfighter absolutely needs our space systems to be able to, to fight. Mm -hmm. Frankly, we need it to be able to deter conflict in the first place, which is the goal, right? right? And so how do we assure those systems? We have two main lines of effort there. One is resilience, 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 resilience. How do we get more resilient so we can absorb uh, an attack by China or Russia on some portion of our system to minimal de degradation so we can keep fighting through? Mm -hmm. Should reduce the value of attacking the system in the first place, but also make sure we can keep having access to it. And the second part is we have to be able to defend our systems against these counter space threats. So a more resilient architecture and then the ability to defend that architecture. Yeah. Very good. Um, but, uh, let me drift into the offensive side here. And, um, when I think about um, my background in the air domain, we, we gain, seek to gain air superiority over the adversary's battle space as well as over our own for two purposes. One, so that we can defend our own people. So 
nobody strafed a soldier since the Korean War because we've been able to attain right. superiority in that regard. And then also, um, we want to gain superiority over the adversary's battle space so that we can attack them in that battle space. So it would seem today that there's a responsibility, as you've described, not only to defend and protect our capabilities, but if at the same time we allow China or Russia to continue to observe our naval assets movement in the Pacific, for example, that puts our sailors in harm's way. So I, if the logic to me would say you have to think about how you deny them access to their space capabilities and how they might use them to attack our forces as we transit the Pacific, for example, or in Western Europe. So your thoughts on that, on that side of the equation? Yeah, sure, thanks. And obviously I need to measure my words here, but here's what I'll say. Uh, one, China is developing a wartime architecture. You're absolutely right. Uh, and they're doing it in a much different way, right? We started building our space architecture decades ago when it was relatively a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. It was really just two governments, the United States and Russia. Uh, and that's a very different scenario than we see now. Obviously, massive growth of commercial space as well, but China has really accelerated their space uh, systems, massive number of satellites going up every year, uh, and it's a wartime architecture, mm -hmm. and it's, it's got their, their, their focus is us. So when we talk about how we're going to defend uh, U.S. national security interests against both space and counterspace threats, I've talked about assurance. There's another line of effort there, which is uh, attribution. So we have to be able to detect and attribute mm -hmm. hostile acts in space. That's because of space domain awareness argument. You have to know what's happening in your domain. You have to know who's doing it to you. Certainly essential to, for deterrence, right? That's right, so absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then the third piece, though, is we have to be able to protect the joint force. That's our service members mm -hmm. in harm's way on the ground or on, at sea mm -hmm. uh, from adversary hostile uses of space as well. So how are we going to do that? Uh, uh, this is where integrated deterrence becomes uh, kind of more than a bumper sticker. But both to deter and to fight and win if deterrence fails, we need to leverage options across all operational domains. Uh, and so that is what we are all uh, working really hard on. Okay. So, so there is a focus then, and, and it almost sounds like a bit of a policy change uh, as well from the past where we, we didn't con even consider um, countering adversary space capabilities, because we couldn't talk about space as a warfighting domain, to a realization that if left unimpeded, uh, their space capabilities could have a real impact on the outcome of a fight. I, I guess I would say maybe less of a policy change and more of a security environment change. Uh, certainly driven uh, yeah, by, by the change in the absolutely. Absolutely. I don't yeah. think we, we started this fight, to be sure. I think you know we're, we're reacting to a hostile environment. And you can see that's how, uh, you know, kind of the brilliance of the secretary pivoting the building towards China has uh, really allowed us to focus on these high-end problems. Great. Um, the, uh, in the recent uh, NDAA, it directs the U.S. Space Force to publish an unclassified report on how it will protect right. and defend current capabilities. Right. How, how will your office be involved in that? Uh, we'll be writing that. <laughs> um, so that's how we'll be involved in that, and I, you know, in ongoing conversations with congressional staff and members on this type of thing. And I think, you know, to the credit of the members who are driving this, uh, really what folks are asking for is some ability to talk uh, at unclassified levels to mm -hmm. their constituents and to their colleagues 
about the need to invest in space uh, and the, the, the issues with the threat. So we are working on, uh, I think there's been anything groundbreaking, but actually trying to accumulate, here's the threat. I mean, China's, Russia, both, as I really have almost laid out the whole argument here, mm -hmm. Kevin. Uh, both China and Russia see the U.S. reliance on space, and we know we rely on space. It's in our DNA. It's how we fight. It's how we fight and win. Of course, space is more than just warfighter essential. It's actually national economy essential. Absolutely. Mass is an economic driver. The U.S. is the leader here. Uh, and we're just really at the beginning of what I think is going to be mass continued growth as long as we can preserve this secure, stable environment. Mm -hmm. So that's part one. Right? This secure, stable environment gets into this need for norms and responsible behavior, and the U.S. continuing its reputation as the world leader in responsible behavior in space, uh, and then the ability to defend our systems uh, and be able to fight and prevail uh, if deterrence fails. The goal mm -hmm. is for deterrence to hold. Yep. Right. So how do we prepare for that? Um, and so those three lines I said there. You know, how do we assure our missions, both resilience and defense? Right. How do we? Uh, attribute hostile acts, got to invest in that space domain awareness, and then how do we make sure we can protect and defend the joint force, and that's the joint force that's actually human beings on the ground, mm -hmm. and that space-enabled threat is a problem. A lot of what you said sounds like the maritime domain and the kinds of international norms that have been developed over the years, the importance of the maritime domain to commerce, the importance of being able to operate freely there. Exactly. And the important to defend, importance to be able to defend it and, uh, and prevent people from attacking it. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, obviously, I was a Navy guy, so that's kind of where my, you know, you, you that's where I grew up. And we so forgive that's how you I here. Think about it. It's, it's all right. All right. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> you know, you can see the sky from a periscope. Um, <laughs> but so, but that's just one version of the domain. It just has the advantage of also having kind of that international mm -hmm. space where rules of the road are the things that apply, right? And so, you know, air, same, same, same issue, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, space isn't that different. You got military craft, you got civilian craft. We now have manned, you know, we have we have manned craft and not just the space station anymore, right? Mm -hmm. There will be more more countries, commercial investors trying to get people, uh, you know, space tourism to low Earth orbit. All of these pieces really are going to demand better, better cooperation, understanding, maneuver room, and of course, the flip side is you don't get to really refuel your satellites. I know folks are working on it. But uh, so uh, maneuver has some regrets. And so how do you build these rules to avoid collisions, uh, which are detrimental to you know, entire, entire orbits? Hmm. Uh, really, really essential. That's great. Now, let's shift back to cooperation. Sure. Um, and talk about cooperations between the intelligence community and the Department of Defense and mm, any good. policy issues that might exist there. We had the advantage of having uh, director Chris Golis from the NRO on yeah. one of our forums last year. And uh, he said, you know, paraphrasing, Russia and China want to take away our advantage in space. And that's what we're talking about here today. And subsequently, Secretary Kendall uh, affirmed last year that an informal agreement between the NRO and the Space Force had, had been achieved. I don't know if it was a signed document or just a handshake. But can you talk about how the IC and the DOD, in your view, can better integrate space-based intelligence, intelligence gathered mm. from space, collection, and sharing? So on the specifics of your question, I probably don't have enough in the weeds on that, but here's what I can say. I think that the cooperation between the Department of Defense and the IC on space-related issues right now is as strong as it has ever been in our history. It is remarkable. It's a remarkable change, even from a few years ago. Uh, 
I personally do believe that a large piece of that is because of the focus on China <laughs> and the need to cooperate to kind of maximize our ability. Uh, but I also think part of that is that some of us who have kind of grown up in and around this, getting towards these leadership positions and understanding all the fights that have been in the past, like this has not been to anyone's advantage. And I think that's, uh, I think that's also a really great place. So mm -hmm. we've got, uh, I mean, I can pick up the phone and call Chris anytime. I talk to him constantly. Uh, his team is really, really leaning in on this cooperation piece, not just DOD, IC, but also the allied piece as well. Uh, routine conversations with the IC, various forums, stakeholder meetings, uh, pull asides. It's really uh, rewarding. And I am conscious every single minute that I don't know if this is fleeting or if this is the way of the future. I hope it's the way of the future because everyone gets a lot more done this way. Uh, but right now at this time and this place, uh, this is a very good time to be working on these issues. And we had Secretary Cavelli in here. Uh, for, Frank's great, yeah. Yeah, and he's, you know, he mentioned that he wanted to leverage the expertise in the NRO for developing Absolutely. reconnaissance satellites. I mean, they've been doing that forever. But in the past, if you use the word reconnaissance and space in the same sentence, the NRO stood up and said, that's what we do. Nobody else can do it. Um, but there seems to be a clear need today for satellite and intelligence collection for the warfighter, dedicated to the warfighter, developed by the Department of Defense. Are there any policy issues that would prohibit that from happening? I am not aware of them, but that does not mean I am 100% correct. I will say this particular issue hasn't come up. Uh, on some level, you're harkening back to the old operational response of space days. You know, we're way past that, mm -hmm. and I think one of the reasons we're past that is the commercial availability right. of, uh, right. of imagery. Yeah. Even you know, synthetic aperture radars now commercially available. This kind of thing is changing this whole dynamic, and I think that is part of this as well. There's not just one individual somewhere in an office that controls access to this information right. anymore. I um, couldn't agree more. That I think the commercial aspects of this, whether it's infrared, optical, SAR, and even electronic now is is out there. So right. uh, the exclusivity is, is kind of OBE. Kind of. Yeah. Maybe not for missile warning, missile track, but uh, for many things. No, no, is, yeah, right. I agree. Right, I agree. right. I don't it's think mission dependent. A, it's mission dependent, right. There's not much of right. a commercial market right. for that. Right, thank God. Yes, <laughs> okay. So, well, good. I'm glad to hear there's no policy issues there because uh, it's always been a point of tension. I mean, national reconnaissance means the number one priority is national intelligence collection. And in a war fight, um, the combatant commander needs to have intelligence collection that's dedicated to he or she as well. Uh, right. And, and and so I think that opens up, opens up a lot of opportunities. for Right. There's always this historical tension, but with the availability of more and more resources, some, but mm -hmm. not all of that tension, I think, tends to uh, at least recede, if not fade yes. to zero. Nothing fades to zero, as you know. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Hey, you know, let's switch back to resilience, if we could, for a sure. minute, because you've talked about that extensively yeah. here. Yeah. And um, what, you know, what approaches are DOD, is DOD pursuing to make space infrastructure more resilient and survivable beyond i mean we're, we're putting more satellites up yes that's, that's no it's a great beyond that I think. it's a great point and i will just say i think it is recognized now throughout the department uh that resilience isn't just proliferated orbits that may be part of it mm -hmm. but if your ground if your ground segment is one one station that's not resilient at all yeah. right that's not resilient against adversary it's not even resilient against a power failure perhaps and right. so how do you build resilience out in the ground segment that's really important mm -hmm. 
perhaps in the user segment as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to it. It is one of these things that if you start to pull the thread, you can go farther and farther, you know, upstream on any particular piece and you're like, wow, this isn't resilient. So there's a lot to be done, but you can't do everything. But it's it's weirdly baked into all the conversations. The kind of joke I like to tell is that uh, in the Obama administration, uh, Vice President Biden was briefed by the Department of Defense that will be resilient in 10 years. Uh, and then in the Biden administration, uh, department said we're working on it. He said, hey, 10 years ago, you told me <laughs> you'd be resilient, so <laughs> let's get going. But it is in it is in every conversation. And how is this more resilient? What do you need for resilience? I remember routinely talking to Chris Scalise about these types of issues. It just comes up, not for the reason of the phone call, but it's just built into our conversations in a way that uh, is both refreshing but really helpful. People understand we have this issue, uh, and the adversary understands this is an issue, so how do we get around that? Yeah, very good. I imagine cyber is a big part of that resilience. Cyber well. is a big issue there too. You know that is under my purview at the moment as well. So kind of these strategic different different strategic capabilities. And look, cyber has a huge attack surface mm -hmm. uh, for satellites. Uh, and how do we harden our satellites against that? And of course, you know, stuff that got launched twenty or thirty years ago. Not the same cyber standards as things you might be launching now. So one, how do you backwards help this? But as a second, as you go forward, how do you build something that can be dynamically improved, right? Mm -hmm. We have to get past the idea of just a fence or a shell. We have to do defense in depth. Mm -hmm. The Solarium Commission would say that's not just for satellites, it's for all infrastructure. How do you do defense in depth of your satellite systems, both on ground and in space, uh, so that even if an adversary has some access, the ability to, to do damage is minimized? Yeah. One part of the resilience equation we haven't talked about yet is launch. Mm. Uh, you, you need to be able to access the domain. So um, getting satellites into orbit and assuming some are lost in a conflict, re resupplying those, we've already talked about that a little bit, um, requires launch infrastructure. And uh, to your point earlier about if you only have one ground station, that's a vulnerability. Well, we have Vandenberg and we have yeah, Cape Canaveral. We have Wallops Island now, but all, our do. launch infrastructures are on the coast and they're fixed. And so a little vulnerable to attack more than, say, a mobile launch capability or an airborne launch capability. Mm. Do you see um, policy having a role in that, particularly if one were to imagine a uh, some of these smaller rockets maybe being able to launch from inland locations, the deserts of Nevada, um, Mojave, California, places like that, where we traditionally have avoided doing that, but the Chinese and Russians certainly do that. They launch from deep within their, their borders. Right. So I think uh, a little bit two separate issues there. Mm -hmm. uh, one issue is this idea of just launch infrastructure. Does it meet our needs? Uh, you know, kind of at saturated launch capacity for national security space launches mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, so I think the, you know, if we had additional launch capacity, I think it might fill up pretty quick, frankly. Right. Uh, and I fully agree there's a fundamental difference between large heavies to geo and what some of these smaller commercial providers look like they might be able to provide, especially the LEO, right, with a smaller rocket, smaller footprint. Uh, you know, I know Rocket Lab launched out of Wallops uh, recently, mm -hmm. and that's interesting and new, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, how can we kind of use that diversification uh, for resilience, not only of our infrastructure, but potentially in some future situation where you're actually trying to launch our response? Right. 
And and you you mentioned that a launch on under attack kind of thing. Well, let me start. Well, let's not say that. No, let's no, not say no, that. no, that's no, not, not under attack. Yeah, okay. I meant okay. we, you started we started losing satellites that become attrited, and you want to resupply in conflict. Yeah, that's a. That's a little bit out there, I think, this kind of reconstitution. I mean, it is out, it is a thing mm -hmm. that in concept, but it is, uh, it's hard, right? Because there's, the there's, timeline, yeah. there's implications the timelines for don't funding match. How you posture for well, it, right? not only that, there's implications like it's, you know, you launch a satellite, at least the moment, someone may have a different answer, but the satellite doesn't work 30 seconds after you launch it and also if, if there's just a lot of logistical pieces to it i'm not saying it's not possible but like we're not going to turn a switch and that's not going to be a thing tomorrow right. there are some other things you might think about wanting to rapidly respond to that are a little bit less than a reconstitution problem mm -hmm. so i do like this idea of some type of tactically responsive launch and i think uh you're going to see us trying to dig into that okay great um more on the resilience side um you, you commented we talked a little earlier about you know, there's not many gas stations in space, but not yet, not yet, not yeah. yet. But there actually there are some. Yeah, uh, geo is a little so. bit easier. Yeah. Yes, but maneuvering satellites as uh, so your proliferation is right. one way to it's have great. resilience. Yeah, good. What about uh, the ability to maneuver? You know, you're under attack. Uh, have mm. you know if a maneuvering satellite is much harder to hit than a stationary one, and uh, or, right. or even rendezvous on. Right. So uh, thoughts on that? So, right. I mean the. The, the fuel is finite, mm -hmm. so you have a finite amount of fuel, so every time you maneuver, you have less future maneuver space. Uh, that's well understood by all of our engineers, obviously, uh, and I think uh, having some excess there for that type of scenario is certainly worth considering. I mean, it's extra mass, but for survivability, that, that may be really useful. I do think, uh, you know, just on the cusp, but obviously some of the contractors are looking at ways to refuel in space mm -hmm. or replace certain components. So that may have some play, but you have to design your systems for that. So we're you know, we're at the front end of that movie. Right. Or maybe some technologies that allow you to um, to not rely on the conventional propellants that we use that we, we fair. use up. That's fair. And you know there's a flip side of this too, of course, which is so some of the proliferated constellations have very, very, very low thrust, like these hall thrusters, mm -hmm. and they're almost constantly maneuvering, mm -hmm. which not quite the same type of maneuver you're speaking about, but that does change your ability to do space domain awareness if your legacy system is based on, well, there it is, so now I know where it's gonna be next week. Well, next time it around. keeps doing yeah. this, right? Yeah. So you have to have that awareness mm -hmm. piece built in with constant revisit for these objects to see where they are, where they're headed. Uh, it's just a different problem set than it used to be. Yeah, I'd agree. Can we switch to Ukraine and maybe some lessons, sure. lessons learned there? Sure. Um, there's been reports that uh, the Russians have attempted to interrupt SATCOM capability or communications for the Ukrainian forces, and GPS jamming has been reported uh, in that uh, theater as well. Um, can you talk about lessons learned that, that we're accumulating as we observe how the Russians are operating in the Ukraine related to the space domain? Sure. Um, I say a couple things. One, this whole war is just completely unjustifiable, and I squarely put the blame on on Putin for this. It's 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 illegal, unjustifiable, and it's causing massive uh, misery, and it's, it's just a terrible thing. Uh, as far as some lessons learned, I'm just put on my overall uh, ASD hat here, and I'll say a couple things. One lesson, not one you asked, but the, the tendency of Russia to use missiles 
uh, kind of exceeds anything I think I probably would have considered. It is mm -hmm. not being used in, for military effects, right? They're going after civilian infrastructure, uh, and it kind of feels like the Blitz alone in World War II. I mean, it is just a tremendous, tremendous number of missiles targeting civilian populations. Uh, so one lesson learned, frankly, is uh, that that is a thing folks need to be ready for. Uh, missile defense is going to be important, being able to get after these launchers uh, and get after that infrastructure to try to you know, missile defeat enterprises, a thing we worked on in our missile defense review, which has some space applications, obviously, because we use space to tell us things are coming. Uh, but that is a very big lesson learned, which is this is part of the future conflict, full stop. Uh, second part, I'd say, uh, you know, the Russians are very keen on electronic warfare integrated maneuver units. They have, uh, you know, I don't think any surprise, they're trying to jam GPS or jam SATCOM. Those are things we should expect. Uh, I would say what's interesting about uh, you know, Starlink is the, you know, proliferated Leo SATCOM available right now. Mm -hmm. uh, really became available in the same time frame. Right. Uh, obviously, other companies coming, uh, but that is a really, really powerful thing because you've got your comms, you've taken them out of geo, where there's just a you know, fixed point really mm -hmm. to put energy on. Uh, and you, you change the equation significantly, and that makes it much harder. So it's very right. interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, uh, the, again, a policy question here. So um, look, the Ukrainians are using Starlink. Uh, Russia recently stated that it considered Starlink satellites legitimate military targets since it is providing communication services to the Ukrainian military. What, what's our policy with regard to defending Starlink satellites? Do you see that evolving, or is it kind of traditional policy that would say, hey, we defend our, our CRAF aircraft when they're um, supporting military operations, we defend our commercial vessels when they're supporting U.S. naval operations, so that it would be logical that we would defend commercial assets in space? So I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first part is this. The Russians saying a thing, and the Russians are attacking civilian infrastructure. So they, they, what they consider a legitimate target is not necessarily a legitimate target. Violation that of the, the law. Certainly conflict. appears to be to me. I'm not a lawyer, but certainly appears to be to me. But again, I'm not a lawyer. We leave that for the, the lawyers of the White House to decide. On the piece of uh, this issue about defending, so the Department of Defense will defend uh, you know, commercial uh, satellites if ordered to do so. That is a very narrow window, uh, and I really can't say more about it, mm -hmm. but so I don't know how different that is, um, but it is there as a thing that we could be ordered to do, and so we have to be able to take action to do that. Great. I mean, part of, I think, uh, what you're seeing, though, this is me channeling the Russian, is Starling's obviously driving a little bit crazy, right? Because it's, it's new, and mm -hmm. it's hard, mm -hmm. and so you know, these statements, I think, uh, kind of reflect that. Good. But there's no policy. I guess what I'm, to read back to you, no decisions taken, but there's no policy to inhibit. In fact, I, I would suggest, going back to right after the Vietnam War, the Mayaguez was a commercial ship that the U.S. went to protect and defend and, and rescue the crew from. Mm. Um, so there's, it's not without precedent for us to use military forces to protect U.S. flagged ships, for example. If ordered. If ordered. Right. If ordered, yeah. It's 
not necessarily a, a standing order in that regard. But my pay grade. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But right. so there, you don't see any policy issues here uh, at this point. Again, new terrain. Yeah. Kind of a new frontier. Uh, basic line is, you know, if ordered, that's a thing we will work to do. Okay. Thanks. Um, integrating commercial capabilities into mm. Department of Defense operations. So SpaceX and Rocket Lab recently announced the creation of defense-focused subsidiaries. Um, what's, what is the department doing to allow for greater commercial integration, a la Starlink, into Ukrainian right. operations? Right, right. This would be Starlink into U.S. operations or any of these other assets that are being put on orbit that look like they have potential to increase resilience. Yeah, so first of all, you know, this, the explosion of commercial uh, available uh, services from space mm -hmm. Uh, clearly increases resilience for some mission sets, right? SATCOM, perfect example, right? There's tremendous amount of SATCOM bandwidth available. We can buy SATCOM bandwidth. And so you can think of kind of our resilience uh, plan should include the ability to access different uh, commercially available pieces when needed. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a commercially available mission set, and we should be able to do that. And so I will say overall, uh, Commercial integration, absolutely key. I'm not the acquisition guy, right? Frank Calvalli is the acquisition yeah. expert, uh, but we have had these conversations, and he's out in the front leading on this. But uh, you know, he's he's even made these statements like we should uh, buy what we can and build what we must. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's how we kind of help unlock this. There's obviously still a lot of barriers uh, for small companies to get inside uh, departmental contracts to be able to fund themselves. But I think folks are really working on it in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not saying it's solved, but the growing understanding of the need to do this so we can move faster yeah. uh, is, is, you know, moving faster is kind of at the key here. And let's be honest, left to its own devices, we can't move that fast as a department. Mm -hmm. I mean, the budget cycle, right? Right now, we're waiting for the 24 budget to drop. Right. We're starting to build our 25 budget, uh, and it's February 23. I mean, that's crazy if you're a I mean, you, you could never survive at the, you know, small business scale if you're working on a thing now for a two-year-later investment. And so how do we speed that up and be able to buy these, I think, is, yeah. is really important. But I, I don't want to pretend like it's solved. Right. On, on the flip side, what do these guys need to do to these new entities to uh, make themselves credible and, and secure partners? Because you certainly need them to be not only be able to deliver what they promise, but also if, if we're going to rely on them, that they're going to be able to continue in the time of conflict. Right. So now you're talking kind of a commercial space operator, which mm -hmm. is different than yes. you know, a piece of hardware, a piece of software that, that I might incorporate or might buy. I'm talking about an operator. Right. So the operator thing is a much bigger thing. How do you have yeah. access to that and ensure you have access to that? And it's, I think uh, you know, folks are working on it. Um, this growing awareness of you know what can be done here. Obviously, industry partners have to come along and force them to do things. That would be crazy. But I think uh, you know we have a craft-like agreement with uh, aviation, civil aviation, mm -hmm. and while it wouldn't necessarily be quite the same, uh, there may be ways to have some type of access in times of need. The department could have agreements on. Luckily, I'm also not the contracts guy, so I can just kind of talk about it without giving you any specifics or having to sign up for it. Just light a pipe and that's right. About it. That's very very interesting, very interesting question. <laughs> uh, but no, folks are working on it. In fact, the Air Force has just had a two-day conference on this type of issue. Good, great, great. Um, let me shift to the combatant commander needs. So mm. General Dickinson, the commander of U.S. Space Command, testified that space domain awareness is his number one priority and number one shortfall. 
Um, what, it, can you talk a little bit about what the DOD is doing to help alleviate this shortfall in his regard? And, and I know you're not in the acquisition side right. for stuff, but um, I don't know if there's any policy implications or anything that policy can do to help out General Dickinson's issue. So, you know, I think, uh, first of all, space domain awareness, very important. And we've, we've talked about that some at the top mm -hmm. of this, so I won't go yeah. into it again. But being able to do that right is more than just having sensors. It's how do you integrate the sensors to draw attention to those pieces mm -hmm. that you need to be focused on. And that is also one of the differences now with thousands and thousands and thousands of commercial satellites, mm -hmm. uh, to say nothing of all the pieces of space debris. There's an awful lot of things in space. So you actually are going to need machines to help you filter out which pieces are interesting to look for. Mm -hmm. And you need to know these things because you want to say, is there something out of the normal happening in my domain? that I need to watch or potentially respond to. Uh, the second part, of course, is this question of like, into how far out. Uh, but even if we just talk about LEO and GEO, I think this ability to have better awareness and better understanding of, is that a threat action happening right there? Uh, we have to keep investing in this. And this is a place where allies can help, right? I mean, just geographically, allies can help, uh, but also, all sorts of allies and partners also have telescopes and other uh, sensors and a better way to integrate all of these things and come up with solutions based on kind of modern processing, uh, I think would be m massively useful. I think that's a great point. And you hit on it earlier, the importance of our alliances. Um, I think a lot of folks don't appreciate the fact that geography matters in space. Tremendously. And so, you know, if you want to surveil the southern hemisphere space domain, you've got to be in the southern hemisphere unless you're having a satellite on orbit like uh, GSAP, but even that has its limitations. So I, I couldn't agree more with you that our allies are gonna be critical to not only space domain awareness, but perhaps launch resilience, perhaps uh, some counter space capabilities that they could bring to bear that would help protect our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine guardians that are operating in these domains. So that was a, I, I, loved, I loved your emphasis on bringing the allies in and uh, working closely with them. Um, and then your point on um, not declassification, but kind of relaxing uh, what we can right. talk about, overclassification, right. eliminating overclassification. And you want to hit on that again? Because I, I, I just think that's that's so critical, particularly sure. if you want to do this. Sure. So we'll touch two things. First, on the allied piece, let me just say, well, the National Defense Strategy focuses on allies, and I've, I've said multiple times, like, we have true allies, mm -hmm. right, in the ways that neither Russia nor China could literally ever hope to achieve. We have allies by force. We have allies by, you know, common uh, approach to the world, the security environment. Sometimes democracy. they have allies with, because they have bags of money to do That's right. That's right. But are uh, not true. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's coercive, right? Yeah. And so I think, uh, but, so our allies are a massive massive asymmetric advantage that China and Russia cannot hope to have. But they're only an asymmetric advantage if we work together to operationalize that asymmetric advantage. And that's the thing we're talking about here. And yes, geography is absolutely one part of it, uh, but the classification part turns out to be one part of it as well. So we had a, a CSPO meeting, uh, the uh, combined Space Operations Principles Board meeting. It was in New Zealand uh, in December, uh, but it's uh, the U.S., U.K., New Zealand, uh, Australia, France, Germany. I feel like I left one out. U.S., U.K. Nope, U.S., U.K. Oh, Canada, Australia. Mm -hmm. Yep, New Zealand. So five eyes in France and Germany. So seven Excellent. nations. Excellent. Right? And 
working on how do we figure out how to be able to do information sharing at operational relevant speeds to be able to uh, use that asymmetric advantage. Really good conversation, folks really leaning into it, really hard, mm -hmm. and the thing that limits us is over classification of information. Classification of information, classification of information, yeah. So working on that, I will say inside the department, the deputy secretary has directed uh, kind of a SAP reform effort, uh, and that is hopefully coming to some conclusion soon. Can't talk too much about any of that, obviously, mm -hmm. but that's not, that's, that's across all domains, uh, but I think uh, anyone in those systems has understood that the number of SAPs has kind of spiraled out of control, and how do we bring that back down to be able to cross-level folks mm -hmm. to maximize our ability to uh, uh, be ready to, to fight and win. That's great. You know, the other side, it occurs to me on eliminating over-classification, not declassification, as you point out, is that if you really want the American public to understand the threat, you have to be able to talk to them about it. If you want our elected leaders to fund the capabilities we need, it can't be all compartmented. Absolutely. It's got to be, Absolutely. we need to. It has to be accessible enough to talk about. Exactly. Great. Well, John, I've, I've monopolized everyone's time here with my questions. I think, uh, as we always do on the forum, we like to give our audience an opportunity okay. to ask questions. And, and I have a great assistant here, Aiden Poling, is screening all the chat questions that have been coming in. And I'll ask uh, Aiden to select one from the top of the list, and, and we'll let you uh, address questions the audience might have. All right, all right. Aiden? We have a question coming in from Frank Purdy. He asks, how will the department work with NATO on the emerging Alliance Persistent Surveillance from Space APSS program? I'll just address that uh, generally. Thanks, uh, Frank. I think, uh, look, NATO is not a monolith, of course. It's really a, a collection of allies. But working with NATO on space and space domain awareness is absolutely uh, essential as well. Um, and I think that the, uh, the conflict over Ukraine has, has helped kind of accentuate that space is part of a normal, you know, it's one more operational domain that we need to be working in together. Very good. Great. We have another question from Michael Marrow. He asks, what new priorities for space will the fiscal year 24 budget reflect, if any? Uh, nice try, Michael. Uh, you know, wait and see. Uh, I think the current goal, and this is only a thing I read it on email, so I can't promise it, but I think the current goal is uh, March 9th, roughly, for a budget drop, somewhere in early March. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think there'll be any surprise to see that we're going to continue to invest in space. Uh, it's absolutely essential to the 21st century fight. Great. Uh, Tim Ryan asks, do you see an unclassified version of the Strategic Space Review being released? Uh, so thanks, Tim. I would say roughly no, but I don't want to spoil your hopes. I would say, uh, look, that was internally tasked by the National Security Advisors, the DOD, and the IC. And so that is not really a document uh, that would be turned into an unclassified document for release. But we do have this uh, task from the Congress that uh, Kevin mentioned during the, the uh, mm -hmm. discussion uh, to provide an unclassified uh, protect and defense strategy. And so we will have you know, something there. But, but the, the, the space strategic review, we call it the scissor, the SSR, uh, no, I don't, I don't anticipate that. Okay. Uh, we also had a couple questions 
kind of understandably about the loons and NORAD. So yeah. basically, what can space assets do to help alleviate this problem? So obviously the U.S. government's been focused on this issue uh, for a couple weeks now, including myself. I will say there is, you know, sensor overlap. Uh, the same sensors that we use for missile defense, the same sensors we might use for space domain awareness uh, can also be tuned, uh, of course, to look at the uh, stratosphere. And so how to tune those or understand how to use the information coming back from those to uh, get better awareness of that domain is, is definitely part of the solution. So, you know, kind of sensors are multi-use multi and figuring out the right balance of resources uh, for these different parts of, of uh, what they can see is really an important piece going forward. Would you agree it's, yeah. a, it's a domain, if you will, in a, between 100,000 feet and 400,000 feet that in the past there, there wasn't a lot going on there. So maybe our focus was a little lower in the atmosphere and now we have to pay attention to that? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've got radars trained for cruise missile threats mm -hmm. like low, mm -hmm. low, low air breathing things, but I think this idea here is big. I will also say it's not just a Department of Defense issue though, right? I mean, the FAA is, uh, yeah, is supposed to regulate our airspace and the airspace keeps going up past, you know, commercial jets. And so I think this kind of growing awareness of this problem is gonna be part of this conversation. Great, thanks. Uh, we have a question from Lavenia Anderson asking how the Air and Space Force is looking to recruit young people for the Space Force, given like the surge of like high-tech talent that is entering the workforce now. Um, so I can't speak to the Air Forces, uh, but I can speak a little bit to the Space Forces, and I'll just say uh, Space Force is doing fine on recruiting at the moment, is my understanding. Uh, I think uh, the world is doing that for them in some level. Mm -hmm. uh, space is fascinating. I tell the story, you know, my kid's got a stuffed rocket ship. Other kids have teddy bears, my kid's got a stuffed <laughs> rocket ship. Uh, but the fact is, you can watch a launch any month almost now. And so it's, it's, it's accessible, it's exciting, and it's fun. And so I think folks with a kind of an engineering bent or inclination, or maybe they become more interested in engineering or science because of these programs, some percentage of them think the Space Force is a place to go. And I think, uh, you know, it's a small force, so it also has this other salt. It, it, you know, it's like the Army. It's got a small number of folks it's trying to solve. And I think, uh, I, I personally think recruiting the Space Force, uh, of which I'm doing some right now, join the Space Force, uh, uh, is, is, is in a good place and I think will continue to be. I couldn't agree more. Um, in fact, General Raymond said he was had ten applications for every slot, and yeah. I think all the service, that's, uh, all the service that's really would envy that. Right. Yeah, right, that's really something. And not everybody wants to be on the technology side; they may be more on the operational side. Yeah, I will say my hope is, this is this is not a new statement, but right. I mean, space is interesting; it is happening now. People can see it. Mm -hmm. uh, my hope is it gets more kids interested in science and engineering, STEM disciplines. We need that from a national security standpoint. We need that from an economic standpoint. Uh, and also, it's fun. Right, and NASA going back to the moon helps too, right? It does, no, that's right, it's not just DOD, it's I don't wanna pretend that it is, it's yeah. not just DOD, it's the commercial explosion, it's NASA's string of successes, it's the James Webb Space Telescope, yeah. all of these pieces combined, space is becoming more, uh, I guess, available and accessible, and that hopefully is driving more folks interest in uh, these different disciplines, absolutely. And since I butted into the Q&A here, I'm gonna, Stay there for just a second, if you don't mind, folks. Uh, we didn't talk about cislunar. 
Uh, but I mean, man, I thought we were going to get through yeah, this. Without tried, talking about just tried, yeah. Okay. So, and then really, I just want to. Do you see? I mean, obviously, it's a policy issue uh, first, and then then it's a capability issue. But yeah. But what are your thoughts on? Or maybe you could tell us what do you, how DoD is starting to mature their thoughts on policy with regard to beyond geosynchronous orbit out to the lunar orbits and Lagrange points, et cetera. We're seeing yeah. Chinese activity and Russian activity. Yeah, I. Uh, I guess I would say in a priority order, mm -hmm. I think our ability to focus on the geo and Leo problem is really key. Top. And that's kind of okay. where we're focused mm -hmm. now. I don't want to throw a complete cold water on it. Uh, obviously, it's good to know what's going on in space, but space is really big, right? That's my uh, And so I think we need to get our hands on this piece at home. Yeah. Well, and and I always thought, and I'll bounce this off you, that you know NASA has an interest in what's going on between Absolutely. the Earth and the Moon, and maybe there's Absolutely. a partnership opportunity Absolutely. there for cislunar awareness. Yeah, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it and working on it. I'm mm -hmm. just saying if I were to rank that, it would be below the, kind of the near the dog closest yeah. to the sled. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, good. Aiden, back to you for another question. Uh, we have time for one last question. Okay. Uh, is there any plan to counter PRC or Russian access to ground sites across the world in, located in other countries as a way to limit their ability to build or maintain their own SDA library? Uh, I see. In other words, uh, ability to stop them. Um, you know, for yeah. example, the Andean Ridge, you know, that's in the southern, right. southern hemisphere. And we know right. the Chinese, through universities, the Russians as well, and other right. things use those as platforms to surveil space. Yeah, so I think there's two things in tension there. Um, so first of all, obviously that would be great. Just say, hey, you guys can only have a telescope in your home country and otherwise uh, you can't have anywhere else. Uh, that would be great. Uh, and obviously that would be to our advantage. Uh, and so I will just say on some level that is old think, I'm trying to coin a phrase here, uh, space is becoming increasingly transparent, mm -hmm. right? Uh, hobbyists can set up telescopes and look at the sky and record things between the internet and uh, the ability to have access to some of these things. Like a lot of things that you think no one will notice, you can now see. Academic telescopes mm -hmm. coming. All of these things are coming. There is some future state we basically have space transparency, not unlike the Navy worries about, you know, ocean transparency. Uh, we're not there yet, but that's we're kind of in that transition phase. Uh, and so delaying the adversary's ability to have uh, kind of that, that visibility all around uh, is a worthy goal. I think going forward, uh, that's going to get harder and harder. Yeah, probably today more on the diplomatic side to get countries to agree in time of conflict to maybe stop providing that or allowing that information. I mean, there's other, other ways to do it to our advantage, but uh, but I, yeah, I think it's, that's clear what, yeah. what you said. Thanks. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of the Space Power Forum event. I want to thank you again, Secretary Plum, for joining us here today. And from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute, have a great Space Power kind of day. Thanks, everybody.